Hello everyone, let me tell you about the Apple for the Teacher podcast. I'm Anna Thomas, a teacher and your host. So you're probably thinking it's about reading, writing and arithmetic, right? Well, think again. It's a fresh take on true crime, where you wouldn't expect to find true crime. In schools, yes, schools. I will share with you the tragic and shocking stories I have uncovered in my own profession. You will hear stories about murder, abduction, school bus hijack, student disappearance, suicide, kidnap and ransom, school camp tragedy, the list goes on. So if you're looking for something a little different in the true crime genre, then Apple for the Teacher is for you. So join me as I present The Bad Apples. But until then, remember to be a good apple. Hey everybody, welcome back to Murder Under the Midnight Sun. Tonight I have yet another random Patreon release for you. This is one of my earliest episodes, so apologize for the sound quality. I'm having some technical difficulties trying to edit it at the moment. It's also my most listened to episode of all time by far, so I hope you like it. This first Beyond Alaska episode takes place in Austin, Texas. Austin, in my opinion, is probably the best thing about Texas. I would describe it as a liberal mecca in a giant red state. It tends to attract people from all over the United States and the world, many of whom deeply abide by one of the city's unofficial slogans to keep Austin weird. It is also the capital of Texas and currently the fastest growing big city in America, with a population just under 1 million people. There is a joke among Alaskans that Austin, Texas and Portland, Oregon are Alaska's biggest cities, and this is based upon the fact of how many people tend to relocate to those locations, often to try to make it big with their band. Austin is known for a pretty wide variety of things, one being University of Texas at Austin, which unfortunately most people know of of because of the tragic shooting in 1966 in which a lone gunman shot 14 people from the bell tower. At the time, it was huge news, and we remember it now because it was one of the first incidents of its kind. Unfortunately, these kind of things are pretty commonplace now, and I don't think a similar event like this that happened now would be remembered in 50 years. So now that I've depressed you, let me tell you a little bit more about Austin. People tend to move there for a pretty wide variety of reasons. Some go for the hippie vibe, which they kind of love independently owned businesses and they try to keep the big box stores out of there. And it makes the city really pretty. And there's also a bit of a tech boom that started there in the 80s with a lot of big tech companies having offices there, such as Apple, Amazon, eBay, and many more. It's actually the main headquarters for the Dell Corporation, and the founder of Dell actually was living in the same neighborhood where this story takes place, if that will give you a hint of how wealthy the people involved in the story were. It's a pretty diverse population, People from all walks of life live there, 
but they seem to live together in harmony because it's actually one of the safest big cities in the United States. And I saw that it was just voted this year as being the best place to live in the United States. And if Hawaii didn't exist, I might have to agree with that. It is a lovely city. Probably the thing that it's most well known for is its live music scene. It promotes itself as the live music capital of the world. And I'm honestly not sure how one would quantify that, but there are many, many music venues. And they also have Austin City Limits, which is a huge music festival that takes place there every fall. And this festival attracts around half a million people. And from personal experience, that is way too many people to be in that small park. There's often huge bands playing at this festival, but it might take half an hour to walk 100 yards to get closer to the stage. And Austin is also known for the South by Southwest Festival, which is a citywide film, music, and media festival that takes place every spring. This would involve live music being played at various venues and tech companies doing presentations and lots of film premieres. I have never had the um, ability to make it to this, but I would love to go one year just for the film premieres alone. And one last thing that might surprise you is that Austin has the largest urban bat population in North America. They have bat season several months a year, where every night during the season, a huge group of bats flies out from under the Congress Avenue bridge and flies off into the night sky. And when I'm saying a huge group of bats, I mean over a million bats. Seems overwhelming, but I would love to see that. I've heard that it's just a really amazing experience to watch and that a lot of people, even those that have lived there a long time, tend to gather every evening to watch this event. And it would be here in this lovely city where in 1993, a multimillionaire named Stephen Beard would have the bad luck to meet a woman who had left nothing but destruction and broken hearts in her wake. So sit back and relax. Pour yourself a glass of Gavassier, and I'll tell you the story of Celeste Johnson, the gold digger from hell. Stephen Beard had originally moved to Austin in the early 1980s with his wife, Elise. At the time, they were both in their 50s and had been together for over 30 years and had raised three children together. Steve had always had great work ethic, and it had really started paying off recently for them. They were millionaires before they moved to Austin, and pretty quickly they would become multimillionaires. They had moved there to buy in on a new TV station, which would later end up becoming the CBS affiliate for Austin. Steve was just a really good businessman and seemed to be a good guy. He was known to be boisterous and friendly, and he often became good friends with his business connections and people he met in other random ways. And after being together for so long, Steve and Elise were still very much in love. They were both very outgoing, they loved to socialize with new people, and 
they went on many, many adventurous vacations together throughout their long marriage. Steve was known to be jovial and gregarious, and while in some ways they had an old-fashioned marriage in relation to their gender roles, Elise was just a firecracker of a woman, she was not afraid to speak her mind, and Steve loved that about her. Once they moved to Austin, one of their main places where they socialized would be the Austin Country Club. Like many rich old white people, they both really loved golf, and Elise was actually an exceptional golfer. They would spend many of their evenings over the years having dinner at the country club, and it wasn't very long after they moved there that they started making a lot of friends in the community. Their time in Austin was just wonderful. The TV station they had bought into was KBVO, and it really started doing really well for them. 1993 was just a great year for the station. They were celebrating their 10th anniversary, the station was making a lot of money, and they just had a big party to celebrate all of this. That year would also happen to coincide with the 45th wedding anniversary for the Beards. It should have been a time for them of great excitement and celebration, but unfortunately, they would get the worst news possible. Elise had a brain tumor, and it was the kind of cancer that hits hard and fast and barely leaves any time for goodbyes. Elise was diagnosed in March of 1993, and a mere seven months later would die from the disease at the age of 67. Steve was, of course, beyond despondent after this happened. He was also incredibly lonely. His children were all grown adults now and lived in other places. And while he did have a lot of friends to console him and keep him company, he was still living in a big house that seemed completely empty without his wife there. Unfortunately for him, it would be at just this time when he was feeling vulnerable that he would meet a 30-year-old blonde named Celeste, who would soon turn his life upside down. Celeste came into this world as Celeste Johnson in February of 1963. As a child, she was an adorable little girl with dark blonde hair, bright blue eyes, and a beautiful smile. She just looked like the girl next door. She and her three siblings had all been adopted by Nancy and Edwin Johnson when they were infants. They lived in a cute house in Southern California, and from the outside, they probably looked like the perfect all-American family. Inside the house, however, there was often chaos. The mom, Nancy, had mental health issues and had actually spent some time in a mental hospital. Celeste would later claim that she suffered physical, verbal, and sexual abuse during her childhood, but accounts from other family members are contradictory to this. Celeste also happened to be a pathological liar, so the veracity of her abuse claim is questionable. And as she neared adolescence, her family began to su suspect that there was something wrong with her. She began to experience extreme mood swings, and one minute she could be sweet and charming, then a minute later could just turn into this screaming ball of anger. She also became prone to violence and would sometimes get so angry that she would literally beat on her family members. 
The older she got, the better she became at manipulating people. She was incredibly adept at reading people and figuring out exactly how to get them to do what she wanted. She was especially good at getting men to bend to her will. And throughout her life, many, many men would fall prey to her charms. While many of the women who came into contact with her were a little bit more wary of her motives. For a time during their childhood, their father was a a successful businessman. But in the 70s, they had a financial difficulty and the business failed. He ended up going back to college, and the family had to get used to living a lot more simply than they had before. Things became really tense in the household as they were on a super strict budget. And after a while, the parents ended up getting divorced. And the mom began trying as best as she could to poison the children against their father just talking mad crap about him and basically blaming all of the family's problems on him alone. And as Celeste got older, she began to get really out of control. At 15, she began skipping school regularly to hang out with a group of older people, smoking pot and drinking all day. And it wasn't long before she was dating a 17-year-old guy in the group named Craig Bratcher, By this time, she had begun to mature into a lovely young woman. She was no stunning beauty, but she was pretty, she had a bright smile, and she just had some magnetism about her that drew people into her, and they just wanted to be around her, and of course, guys wanted to date her. As she was nearing adulthood, it became obvious that she had a major impulse control problem. One day, she was riding in Craig's truck with him, and she got so mad at him that she jerked on the wheel and caused the truck to roll, which completely destroyed it. Somehow, he forgave her and kept dating her. And it really wasn't too long after that that she was pregnant with twins, and she married Craig at the age of 17. Their twin daughters were born in 1980, both two months premature, but they were healthy, and they named them Jennifer and Christina. Now, you might think that being a teenage bride and immediately having twin daughters would solve all your problems, but you'd be wrong. Having twins only caused more problems between the two, and after a while, Celeste began disappearing for days at a time. She would meet other men and run off with them and come back with her tail between her legs after a couple of days. Craig always took her back. Every time, she would apologize and say it was because of sexual abuse she had suffered as a child. Her story of abuse would evolve over the years, and she would tell different things to different people, and she really only seemed to bring it up when she was trying to excuse her bad behavior. She would use it to explain both why she didn't want to sleep with her husband and also why she wanted to go off and sleep with random men. Meanwhile, Craig was being Mr. Mom, and he just absolutely loved being a dad. He loved and cherished his daughters and took as good of care of them as he could. Celeste, on the other hand, seemed to view them more as an accessory, and she used them when she needed to. Her mother-in-law once heard her tell somebody that one of her daughters had died to explain why she was late on completing something. Her mother-in-law was, of course, disgusted by this, and Craig's family really never liked Celeste. They thought she was bad news. 
1982, the couple was divorced, and Celeste was now a single mom, and she wasn't even 20 years old yet. For a while, she had a roommate named Gail, that is, until Celeste began to act super weird and possessive, and Gail felt like she was living with her mom, who always wanted to know where she was. When Gail decided to move out, Celeste did something that would become a trademark of hers throughout life. She called the police and claimed that Gail had stolen from her. Luckily, there was absolutely no proof and no charges were filed. Gail quickly left the area so as not to ever see Celeste again. During this time, Celeste's life was in constant flux. Sometimes she would put her twins in foster care for a few months to get a break, or she'd get back together with Craig and dump him again the next day, and she had many roommates over the years. At one point, her father was her roommate, and like Gail, Celeste became very controlling over him, and when they argued over this, she decided to call the cops and report sexual abuse he had done on her as a child. But nothing ever came of this. For a while after Craig, she was engaged to another guy, and she ended up cleaning out his bank account and basically disappearing. She then moved off to Arizona with Craig and the twins, and not too long after getting there, she gave birth to another daughter, which she abruptly put up for adoption. The people that she that adopted the baby gave her $10,000 after she lied to them that she needed it for medical bills. She just kept it. She soon would meet another man named Harold Wolf that she fell for. He was a handsome Air Force man, and he really wasn't as into her as previous boyfriends had been. But after a brief time of dating, she claimed to be pregnant, so... He decided to do what he thought was the right thing, and he married her. Within a short time after this, she claimed to have a miscarriage. While she was living in Arizona at this time, she had a job where she met an older female co-worker named Lou Thompson. Lou would become one of her closest friends at the time, and would actually become sort of a mother figure to Celeste. And she listened to everything Celeste told her, and believed everything. Celeste was the kind of person who was always venting and complaining about something, and Lou just ate it up. She kind of just wanted someone to take care of. Celeste claimed that her husband was abusive and a bad father, and Lou decided that she and her husband would take care of the twin girls on a regular basis. And this would last for actually a couple of years. The twins would spend several days a week at the Thompsons, and they were spending every summer with their dad in Washington. And this was actually a time of pretty good stability for the twins, and they would not experience this level of stability for much longer after this ended. The twin daughters had very different feelings towards their mother. Jennifer hated her, and she really preferred to live with her dad. However, Christina kind of felt like she was Celeste's caregiver, and she would have panic attacks if she wasn't around Celeste because she was worried something bad would happen. Celeste was still with Harold, and he kept trying to break up with her, but every time he mentioned it, she would threaten suicide. 
and one time she even called the police on him claiming domestic abuse and showed them bruises that she had given herself. However, since he was in the Air Force, he was luckily relocated to Iceland and did not take his wife. After he left, Celeste and the girls moved around quite a lot. The girls were around 10 at this time, and she began leaving them home at night and going out partying with her friends. There was often not enough money in the household for food because she spent all her money on partying, and the girls recall this time period as just they were constantly hungry, and they pretty much never got dinner, and they were always anxious and scared because they were home alone in a crappy apartment. And really, their mom just didn't do much to take care of them. One time while she was watching the Thompsons' house when they were out of town, Celeste claimed that someone had broken in while she was gone and stolen a lot of expensive and irreplaceable family heirlooms. When Lou was filling out the insurance form, Celeste urged her to add a few more items on the list to get more money back. Lou reluctantly did this and she would definitely come to regret this because later when Celeste was mad at them, she called the cops and told them about the Thompson's insurance fraud. In return, they revealed that they knew that she had once torched her car and then claimed it was stolen. A detective would investigate and find out that Celeste had actually stolen the items from Lou's house. She would actually end up only getting in trouble for the car insurance fraud. She had to pay back the $20,000 she had gotten for her supposedly stolen car, but she never actually did this and just ended up leaving state. The detective who had worked on her case had such a bad feeling about her that he actually held on to her file, knowing sometime in the future that he would see her name in the paper in relation to a much worse crime. In 1991, Celeste married her third husband at the age of 28. Well, despite the fact that she was technically still married to her second husband, so I guess it wasn't really a legal marriage. And she never really revealed this to her third husband either. She also got credit cards in his name, as she had done with her second husband, and pretty much began racking him up. She didn't care. She just wanted to go shopping constantly, and she'd deal with the consequences later. Once Harold came back and saw that Celeste had married somebody else and destroyed his credit in the process, he went ahead and moved all the way across the country to the East Coast, and he would be one of the very few men that was ever able to completely extricate himself from Celeste. Her third husband's name was Jimmy Martinez, and together they decided to move to Austin, Texas. The twins had actually been living with their dad, Craig, in Washington for a while, but they came to visit them in Austin. While there, she ended up manipulating Christina into staying with her, though Jennifer was all too happy to go back to her dad. Celeste also didn't technically have custody of Christina, so this was a bit on the illegal side. Once they moved to Austin, she began working at the Austin Country Club as a waitress, and she quickly left a major impression on everyone there with the way that she flirted with all of the rich old men and was not discreet about it in any way. 
She also didn't really let being married stop her from going out partying and dating other guys. She was the kind of person who treated shopping as a sport, and she racked up much more debt in her third husband's name around this time, spending literally tens of thousands of dollars on clothes and shoes, only to toss them in the closet forgotten. She also developed this nasty habit of claiming to have cancer in order to get money and sympathy and other things. She used this several times to convince people to watch her daughter while she was supposedly getting medical treatment. During this time, she was still having a custody battle with her ex, Craig, and he ended up winning custody, but he let Christina stay with Celeste because she was just very anxious when she was away from her mom. Jennifer stayed with Craig, though, because he was just an actually good parent. And he was now remarried to a woman named Catherine, who was also wonderful to her. Very soon after Celeste started working at the Austin Country Club, she met Steve Beard, who was fresh off of losing his wife and really wanted company. He decided to hire her to be his house manager, and he wanted somebody to just kind of run the house for him. But mostly he really wanted a young woman to live with him because he was super lonely. So around Christmas time, while her daughter and husband were off visiting relatives, Celeste went ahead and moved in with Steve, and they almost immediately began a romantic relationship. He was beyond enchanted by the vivacious young woman. He had not received attention from a woman this young in a long time, and being as lonely as he was, it just completely changed his life, made everything so much better. There were a few in Steve's social circles who truly believed in the relationship, but for most of them, they could see Celeste for exactly what she was. And while Austin isn't exactly a small town, gossip still spreads fast in those circles, and Celeste wasn't exactly closed-lipped about her reason for being with Steve. She told her daughter straight up it was because he was rich. She also was the kind of person that would treat mere acquaintances as though they were her best friend and reveal extremely personal details to them just after meeting them. She would constantly talk about how awful Steve was, how he was overweight and disgusting, and how she hated having to sleep with him. She often vented about this to her hairdresser, when she was at the salon, and this was usually within earshot of many other customers. And while some of Steve's friends saw the situation for what it was, they didn't really want to intrude on his personal life because he was an adult, they knew what he had been through, and they didn't want to cause friction in their friendships by overstepping their boundaries. Steve's children were, of course, very disturbed by this. They were all several years older than Celeste, and it had been mere months since their mother died. And as the relationship continued, Celeste did absolutely nothing to endear herself to Steve's kids. She pretty much developed the stereotypical controlling uh, habit of basically trying to cut them out of his life. She would not return phone messages. She would reject their advances to 
come visit. And she was doing everything to make sure they weren't involved in his life as much, probably because she didn't want them to pay attention to his financial situation. Probably because her ultimate goal, as she told many people, was to have him leave all of his money and properties to her in his will. At the beginning of the relationship, Steve was beyond happy. Dating a younger woman had lifted his spirits and he felt his depression starting to go away. After his wife had passed, he'd started thinking about his own mortality because he was in his 70s and he'd become obsessed with it. But now that he had this young, energetic woman around, he started to come back to life. He had been overweight for several years, but with Celeste urging, he started to actually eat healthier and lost quite a bit of weight. So based on that, I mean, that's one good aspect to the relationship. And another was when Christina came back to Austin after Christmas, she moved in with them and she and Steve quickly bonded. He was more than happy to have a child around to spoil because it had been over 20 years since his own kids had moved out. At first, Celeste had tried to be on her best behavior around the wealthy circles, but it wasn't really long until some of them began to get a glimpse of her real character. She would often complain to longtime friends of his that he was a fat, a fat slob who disgusted her. She kind of seemed to lack total self-awareness in these situations and had absolutely no filter on the words that came out of her mouth. Several months after they started dating, Steve sold his shares in the TV station for $16 million. And within a few months, in the spring of 1995, a little bit over a year after meeting, he and Celeste got married at the Austin Country Club where they had met. Steve did have enough presence of mind to have Celeste sign a prenup prior to the marriage, and this was based on the length of the relationship. So if they got divorced before three years, she would get nothing. He, at this time, unknowingly made his death even more enticing by adding in a stipulation that Celeste would receive much more money if she stayed married to him until he died. And it didn't have to be because of natural causes. So she would sign the prenup and pretend to be fine with it, but then spend the next few years getting as much money out of him as she could, urging him to change his will, and of course, plotting his murder. Yet again, she did not let marriage slow her down. She instead began mixing sleeping pills into his dinner so that he would fall asleep and she could go out partying. They actually almost got divorced just a few months into the marriage because Celeste took his first wife's jewelry out of their safety deposit box at the bank and decided to pawn it for cash. He actually kicked her out over this, and she claimed to be so distraught that she checked herself into a mental hospital. And after a few months, she was able to worm her way back into his good graces. She blamed her bad behavior again on her childhood. She promised to change, and... At the psychiatric hospital, she was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. After C backed off on the divorce and let her move back in, she decided to convince him to get rid of his old house and build them a new one. 
Theoretically, this was for a fresh start for the two of them, but her real motive was so that half of this new house would be hers if they divorced because the old house had been his entirely that he'd had before they married, so she wouldn't get any of it. She also kicked her shopping addiction into overdrive. Interestingly, one of her splurges was on true crime books. She devoured them, and she was interested in learning various ways of getting away with murder. At some point along the way, along with putting sleeping pills in his dinner, she began replacing part of his vodka bottles with Everclear. So when he drank his nightly cocktails, usually around two, he would actually be getting a nightly dose of 190 proof alcohol. This, combined with the pills, no doubt led him to fall asleep early and probably stay asleep for a pretty long time. Steve soon brought property in the most exclusive neighborhood in Austin, and he actually commissioned an architect to design them a house based on Frank Lloyd Wright style. This would include creating man-made ponds and a man-made stream on their property, which would run through the house. In 1996, tragedy hit. The girl's father, Craig, had gotten divorced from his second wife due to drugs and alcohol problems of his. He just sank into a deep depression. Jennifer was still living with him and trying to keep his spirits up, but one weekend while she was out of town visiting relatives, he committed suicide. Celeste admitted she had spoken to Craig on the day of his death, and Craig's family was always convinced that she had somehow talked him into it. They actually ended up completely dropping contact with Jennifer once she had to move back in with Celeste because they just couldn't have Celeste in their lives anymore. Steve quickly bonded with Jennifer when she moved in with them, and he was very instrumental in helping her through the grieving process. While her own mother did absolutely nothing to help her and didn't even seem to notice that she was grieving. Once their new house was complete, Celeste was given free reign to decorate it and pick out furniture and other household items. Over the course of their several years together, she would end up spending nearly half a million dollars on furniture alone. And as time went on, she was able to get more and more money out of Steve. He eventually gave in and gave her a personal checking account that he'd put $500,000 in. He probably hoped she would use this to make investments or something, but it was gone in six months. He begged of her to explain what she had bought, and she really had no answer, probably mostly clothes. This amount was actually the money she would have gotten if they divorced after three years, but now the debt was considered paid, and now the only way she would get a big chunk of change would be if she was married to Steve until he died. Steve was unnaturally tolerant of Celeste's outburst and generally was able to ignore her when she was acting crazy. He did love the spirited aspect of his wife, Elise, so he kind of seemed to view Celeste in the same way, even though she was obviously not mentally healthy. Jennifer and Christina were now in high school and despite the fact that they had horrible attendance because their mom sometimes took them out of school on a whim to go do something, they had a great group of friends and the twins each had a serious boyfriend. 
Celeste tended to treat their boyfriends and friends the same as her own daughters, as though they're only important when they were doing something for her. She called them, and I quote, her little nigglets. Gross. She was also inappropriately honest with them about her love life with her husband. And she kind of just acted like a teenager for the most part. She seemed to have extremely delayed maturity. She also tried to poison them against Steve, but it didn't really work because they spent a lot of time with him too. And they could easily tell that he was obviously a better parent than the twins' own mother. No matter what Steve did, Celeste just hated him. He would take her on lavish vacations, and he even rewrote his will to give her a huge chunk of money when he died. And she still lamented every minute she had to spend alone with him. She actually had a rule for her daughters that they couldn't both be gone on any one night because she didn't want to have to spend a single night at the house alone with her own husband. A few years into their marriage, and Celeste decided to pick up right back where she'd left off with her ex-husband, Jimmy. She had absolutely no shame about it, and she told her daughters everything, whether they wanted to know or not. She would dose Steve with sleeping pills, then she would go out to party all night with Jimmy. And it actually wasn't only Jimmy she was cheating with. On one girls-only trip that she took with her friends and her daughters, she met two businessmen at a bar and left with them for the night. She came back the next morning with no explanation. Soon after this was the girls' 18th birthdays. Celeste decided to throw a massive expensive party that cost tens of thousands of dollars. She invited pretty much everyone she knew, including Steve's friends, her friends, and the daughter's friends. She invited everyone but her own husband, Steve. Her ex, Jimmy, was actually there, and they danced together in front of everyone all night, including many of Steve's friends. They were looking way too cozy, and it actually made a lot of the partygoers really uncomfortable, and they'd leave. Soon after this, Steve found out about the party pretty quickly after he got his credit card statement. And he also found out that Celeste had secretly spent hundreds of thousands of dollars out of his personal account, pretty much by forging his signature on checks. And somehow he had found out about her affair. He was ready for a divorce. Celeste did the rational thing that she'd often done when she might be broken up with, and threatened suicide if he divorced her. This incident would land her in a psych hospital, and there she would meet the person who would become the third point in a love triangle that would turn deadly. When Tracy Tarleton came to the psych hospital, she was a lonely gay woman in her early 40s whose life was in a downward spiral. She had been raised in an extremely dysfunctional household and had endured years of physical and sexual abuse from her parents. Her mom was a severe bipolar alcoholic who took her anger out on her kids, and her dad just ignored the situation and did absolutely nothing to help his kids out. Her mom got drunk basically every night and would scream at the kids. Fortunately, Tracy had two good brothers that took care of her as best as they could, 
and they allowed her to hang out with them, despite the fact that they were both several years older than her. Because of this, she grew up to be a tomboy and developed a love of firearms at a young age. They were in Texas, after all. She also had a deep love of animals, and she'd be surrounded by animals her whole life. On the outside, her family seemed perfect. Her dad was a respected attorney, he made really good money, and her mother was friendly and social. And they lived in a really wealthy neighborhood in Fort Worth. However, behind closed doors, it was an absolute nightmare for the young girl. She just wanted to be loved, and she received none of it from her parents. This childhood would cause great damage to her self-esteem and would contribute to her lifelong mental health and substance abuse problems. After a childhood of tagging along with her brothers outside, she grew to love the outdoors, and she would spend many summers at a camp for children of wealth, and she would later become a counselor there. Side note, this is actually the camp where George W. spent his childhood summers. At the camp, she was known to be kind to everyone, and she was much loved. She had a generous spirit, and she was the kind of person that was always there for anybody that needed someone to listen to them. Unfortunately, no matter how many friends she had or how many people liked her, she still suffered from terrible self-esteem. She never really felt like she fit in, and she didn't know why. She knew that she was different from the other female counselors who were stereotypically feminine, but it wouldn't be until college when she'd figure out why. When she went off to University of Texas, she finally realized she was gay and was able to finally find a group of friends where she felt totally accepted and felt like she fit in. Unfortunately, her long-term self-esteem issues had already caused her lasting damage. She had begun drinking as a teenager to silence her self-hatred and it was a hard habit to shake. She was at college at UT Austin in the late 70s, which was a lot more open-minded than the rest of the country, but she still experienced rejection and judgment from former friends once she came out of the closet. College can be a really hard place to be if you're trying to avoid alcohol. It was basically always around. Many of Tracy's friends were hard partiers and she just really had a hard time saying no. When she drank, all of her internal anger tended to come to the surface, and she could switch from being a cocky drunk to being an angry drunk in a minute. And she would get into many fistfights during this time. She was just unable to control the side of herself, and she would drive away many people she cared about in her life over the years due to this drinking. She just couldn't stop for anybody. Her wild, youthful lifestyle wreaked havoc on her mental health and on her schooling. She was getting terrible grades, and she attempted suicide around this time before finally getting sober and going back to school. She ended up becoming a biologist and worked for a long time for a nonprofit that was focused on bat conservation. At this job, she was able to travel all around the world to see the environments of different bat species, which was just perfect for her. She left that job after several years due to a small miscommunication combined with her anger issues and her inability to 
apologize for a mistake she had made. She would go on to be a manager at the Book People Indie Bookstore in Austin, and she fell off the wagon after several years sober. She kept trying to get back on it, but it was just so hard. And her life, once again, began to become unmanageable and tumultuous due to her drinking. For a while, she was able to focus at work and got many promotions and was much loved by her coworkers and the people she managed. But she began to drink more and more, and it turned into sort of a nightly thing. And after a few years, it really began to affect her work and was exacerbating her depression to the point where she was having suicidal ideation pretty much a daily basis. One night when she was feeling particularly bad, she called friends for help and said that she was playing Russian roulette. They picked her up and took her to the psych hospital. Unfortunately, this fateful decision soon led her to meet Celeste Beard, who would begin to manipulate her into even more self-destructive decisions. In hindsight, Tracy would later realize that Celeste probably had her number the moment they met. Celeste had always had this amazing knack at keying in on people's weaknesses and exploiting them. And in Tracy, she saw a woman who was desperate for love and friendship and whom immediately seemed to be enamored by Celeste, even while in the depths of an intense depression. She was the perfect mark for sociopaths like Celeste, who had no qualms at all about exploiting the vulnerable. While Celeste was at the hospital, she gave no real indication that she was there after threatening suicide. She once again was running her daughter's lives, and she made them and her friends bring her meals every day. While Celeste's kids' lives were wrapped around her needs and were greatly affected by her apparent suicidal tendencies, Celeste didn't even bother to pretend that she was actually depressed. It was all so obviously a ruse to entrap Steve, and... She even said as much to her daughters and their friends. She basically treated the psych hospital like a dormitory and frequently threw her money around to bend the rules. From the first time that she spoke to Tracy, the manipulation had begun. She began to slowly convince Tracy that Steve was awful and abusive and that she was scared of him because he was powerful and she could never leave him. Tracy's natural tendency to care for people and take care of people led her to just want to be there for Celeste. She thought Celeste was a victim of abuse, much like herself. She never suspected that Celeste was, in fact, a bitch in sheep's clothing, who spent her life manipulating every single situation to better suit herself. Celeste's lies deepened to make her appear even more sympathetic. She claimed sexual assault from a multitude of men in her past, including relatives and ex-husbands. Celeste explained that she was suicidal because of this past abuse and because of her current abusive and powerful husband. Tracy believed everything she was told, and while meeting Celeste had boosted her spirits, she thought she was a kindred spirit, the new friendship was really distracting Tracy from the prime reason she was at the hospital, to get better. The two women spent a lot of time together, and the hospital staff was a little concerned, especially since Tracy spent a lot of her therapy talking about Celeste's problems. 
However, it was a short-term intensive care hospital, so they would both soon leave and go on to long-term care. Celeste arranged it so that they were both going to the same facility in Dallas, and she even used Steve's credit card to buy Tracy and an attendant plane tickets to get there. During this time, Celeste got a new psychiatrist who diagnosed her as having several different personality disorders, including BPD, which is borderline, narcissistic personality disorder, and histrionic personality disorder. I'm going to give just a quick overview of these so you can have an idea of what was going on in her brain. BPD is strongly associated with instability of both a person's person's identity, relationships, and emotions. Those who suffer from it can experience dramatic emotional reactions to small things happening, and they tend to have a major fear of abandonment. And they react very strongly to criticism, especially. BPD is often tied in with depression, substance abuse, impulse control problems, and self-harm. It is one of the more stigmatized personality disorders, and women are much more often diagnosed with it than men. NPD is characterized with an inflated sense of self, a need for attention, lack of empathy, and lack of self-awareness. Those who suffer from NPD may never actually seek help for it because they often are not self-aware enough to realize that they have a problem. They value themselves above others and often manipulate others to better their own situations. Commonalities with BPD is that NPD sufferers are not tolerant to any sort of criticism because they have a fragile ego and they would probably also react with extreme emotion to any sort of criticism, no matter how small. HPD also involves an extreme need for attention, which is often achieved by dramatic or overly seductive behavior. A sufferer may not be able to put their own problems in perspective, and the slightest failure can seem like the worst thing that's ever happened. They may blame their problems on others and also manipulate others to achieve the attention and acclaim that they want. A sufferer can also be seen to be extremely emotionally shallow, which may cause them difficulty in maintaining relationships. HPD is a diagnosis more commonly given to women, and there's actually a strong link between HPD and antisocial personality disorder, which as most true crime fans know, is a personality disorder that's common in psychopaths. A person with ASPD can completely lack empathy, and they have strong egotism as well. But the aspect that differentiates it from similar PDs is that many ASPD sufferers just don't care about laws or rules at all, and they'll often end up with long rap sheets. While ASPD sufferers also often manipulate others for their own means, they often go beyond the previously mentioned PDs because they can become aggressive and violent. BPD, HPD, and ASPD have been seen to run in families. However, out of these, ASPD seems to have the strongest genetic link. The other two seem to be present in both those that live with biological relatives with the disorder, and often also in those that live with non-biological relatives with the disorder. 
neither of which really seem to be the stronger determinant in which who will end up with it. For Celeste, who was raised by a non-biological mother who seemed to have either HPD or HPD, I'm sorry, BPD or both, it seems as though she may have had a genetic, genetic predisposition towards one of these disorders, which was possibly exacerbated by her adoptive mother's personality. It is interesting, however, that out of all of the four children that the Johnsons adopted, Celeste was the only one to grow up with any significant mental health issues. While Celeste does seem to have aspects of all three disorders, she seems to lean more into the NPD and HPD categories. And based on her previous behavior and what is still to come, it wouldn't be that big of a leap to also place her in the ASPD category as well. Celeste and Tracy would end up at a place called Timberlawn in Dallas. It's well known for being an excellent treatment center for sufferers of PTSD. Tracy had a long history of PTSD from childhood, and this had led to her having her bad substance abuse problem as a teenager and throughout adulthood. The comparison between these two women is fascinating. While Celeste definitely has some mental health issues, she seems to lack the self-awareness of her actual issues and instead presented herself as someone with depression. On the other hand, Tracy was all too self-aware of her own issues, which did lead to her depression. On one of the counselor's assessments of Tracy, she listed one of her goals at the facility as to begin to like herself, which is heartbreaking. Once both women were at the same facility, Tracy continued with a pattern she had throughout adulthood in which she based her happiness on another person's love and acceptance for her instead of learning to love and accept herself. Before too long, Tracy was head over heels and Celeste claimed to feel the same. Celeste also claimed to have OCD and she said she was obsessed with keeping everything perfect and clean at all times in her house, but this actually only really applied to the parts of the household that guests would see. Behind closed doors, she was completely fine leaving rooms in total chaos, which is a pretty good metaphor for her mind. Celeste had also continued to magnify her supposed childhood abuse and told counselors they're an even worse story than she had told anyone yet. She also told them a lie she had pretty much told everyone her whole adulthood that she had graduated from Pepperdine when she hadn't even gone to college. She also continued with her other favorite lie and told everybody she was a cancer survivor. She had told this to different people throughout her life for different reasons, and the type of cancer always changed. Yet again, counselors noticed the women spending all of their time together. Romantic, frater romantic fraternization was, for obvious reasons, prohibited, but they didn't care. They were spending all of their time together like best friends. Even other patients noticed, and Tracy, again, would continuously talk about Celeste's problems when she was supposed to be working on her own. Other patients noticed that Celeste didn't even really seem focused on treatment or care to be there. 
And whenever she would talk in group therapy, she seemed like she was just telling a lie. And it seemed like she was completely unconnected by from whatever story she was telling. And she was really distracting Tracy, who legitimately needed to get healthy. And Tracy was the kind of person that would bear her soul in group therapy. And again, attracted many friends in the facility, while Celeste was pretty off-putting. Celeste continued to pull the strings in her family, making her daughters drive the couple hundred miles to see her every week. And once they got there, she would send them to run errands for her. She was excellent at giving people the cold shoulder until they would beg to do her bidding, basically just to gain her favor again. She did this to her daughters all throughout their lives and all of her husbands, and she did it to Tracy too. She would decide to be mad one day, then wait a few days before accepting Tracy's apology for whatever minor thing she may have done wrong. During a session, Tracy's counselor said that PTSD victims often make impulsive decisions during treatment. Tracy seemed to be doing this. She was basing her current and future happiness on the possibility of a relationship with Celeste. And Celeste was only continuing to pull the puppet strings to make Tracy hate Steve even more. When counselors urged Celeste to distance herself from Tracy, Celeste blamed Steve, saying that he was using his influence to keep them apart. After a while, Tracy realized that she had power, too, and she could give Celeste the cold shoulder until Celeste begged forgiveness. She mistook this for Celeste really loving and caring about her, but in fact, she was just a cog in Celeste's long-term plan, so Celeste needed her. Meanwhile, with Steve and the kids having the house to themselves, they were happy as clams, without Celeste around to mess their lives up. The girls were getting ready to graduate from high school, and they both had their serious boyfriend still, and they had a good group of friends that they hung out with regularly at the house. They would often have big dinners over there as a group with Steve, and he was only too happy for the good company and the love he got from his stepdaughters, both of whom had now realized that Steve was the best, best parent they had ever had, and he legally adopted both of them. Once... Both Tracy and Celeste had gone outpatient. Her daughters were made complicit in yet another affair. While Celeste had never said so, both girls suspected Celeste and Tracy were having an affair. Despite their love for Steve, they would never tell on Celeste because they were terrified of her wrath. And besides, after spending so much time with Tracy, they really liked her. Celeste would go out and spend time with Tracy at public events, but... Like always, she would turn around and tell others that Tracy was some weirdo that was obsessed with her. She also was back to her affair with Jimmy. She would do anything to spend as little time with Steve as possible. It was actually an open secret at Tracy's job that the two women were a couple, and Celeste allowed Tracy to throw a massive party for the bookstore employees at Steve's lake house. Of course, he knew nothing of this. Everybody partied hard, and the two women danced together all night in front of many, many witnesses. Soon after, Celeste was done with outpatient treatment, and she came back to Austin. Steve really wanted to reconnect with her, so he planned a $50,000 lavish vacation to Europe for the two of them. Celeste was extremely unenthusiastic about this idea. She didn't want to spend so much time with Steve one-on-one, -on -one, and... 
she went behind his back and purchased trip cancellation insurance because she was going to make sure that they never went on that trip. Now that the women were in the same city, they saw each other regularly, and despite knowing of Tracy's problem with alcohol, Celeste pretty much always brought a bottle over when she showed up. Prior to the Europe trip, Steve had arranged a road trip for the teens and their friends with him and Celeste to take a road trip to Washington and back. Celeste was so annoyed at having to spend time with him that she dosed his food with sleeping pills for a few days until he decided to fly home early because he was feeling sick. During this time period, Celeste was getting more eager for Steve to just die. She had no qualms about voicing her excitement for, about his death to her daughters, their friends, and even some of her friends. They all believed he was an abusive husband anyway, so they didn't really care if he died. Now that Tracy was back to her real life, she was experiencing depressive episodes, especially on nights when Celeste wasn't around. She told Celeste this just before Celeste and the twins were going on a trip to Australia, and Celeste voiced her worries to one of her counselors. Mostly she was worried that Tracy was going to commit suicide and ruin her trip. During the Australia trip, Celeste racked up a $2,000 phone bill calling Tracy. She had convinced her to try and make botulism, and she wanted to check in regularly on how the botulism was growing. While she was back from Australia, Steve invited Tracy to have dinner with them, and he wanted to thank her for being such a good friend to Celeste. He also suspected something else. All three of them drank way too much that night and said regrettable things, and Steve actually ended up kicking Tracy out. However, none of them were mad after the fact and just kind of ignored it. Next, Celeste asked Jimmy through a huge graduation party for the twins, and once again, everybody drank way too much. Celeste brought Tracy, instead of her actual husband, to her ex-husband's house. And Jimmy ended up kicking Tracy out after she drank way too much. Celeste had complained that Tracy was trying to make a move on her and it was making her uncomfortable. Tracy was forced to leave and ended up getting a DUI on the way home. Celeste bailed her out from jail the next day and pretty much thought the whole thing was hilarious. They kept trying to make botulism and she would put it in his food, but it didn't seem to affect him in any way. She began ramping up her efforts to convince Tracy to kill Steve, complaining that living with him was slowly killing her. And she became even more obsessed with watching true crime shows. She was also ramping up her own passive attempts to kill him by giving him more and more sleeping pills and Everclear in his nightly food and drink. One night, Steve passed out and Celeste called Tracy over. They both attempted to hold a plastic bag over his head to smother him, but neither had the constitution to stand there and watch him die slowly, so Celeste called an ambulance. A few days later, it happened again. Steve's health was worsening, in large part due to the amount of alcohol he was unknowingly consuming every night. The doctor just assumed he was an alcoholic that could admit how much he drank when he said he only had two drinks. Celeste didn't want to die, wait for him to slowly die. She wanted him dead as soon as possible. And she soon bluntly approached the topic with Tracy, who had maintained her love of firearms since adolescence and still owned several guns. 
It was a few days before Celeste and Steve were supposed to leave on their European trip, and Celeste spent a long time emotionally guilt-tripping Tracy, saying she'd rather kill herself than go on that trip. Finally, after months of manipulation, lies, and hints about Steve's temper and abuse, Tracy relented and agreed to shoot him. She thought that Celeste was a damaged soul who needed saving, and she thought that once Steve was dead, she could finally have the relationship she'd always wanted. So the two women made a plan, and two nights before they were supposed to leave for Europe, Celeste made sure that Jennifer was out of the house, but Christina was home with her to be her alibi. It was Friday, October 1st, 1999. In the early hours of Saturday morning, Christina awoke to a sound. She saw her mother in her room, and they both saw the flashing lights of a police car coming through the windows. In fact, they went to the living room and saw there was already police in the house. While Tracy, beyond terrified and full of regret, had forced herself to follow Celeste's plan and quietly sneak into the house to shoot Steve, a monkey wrench had been thrown into their plan because Steve didn't die. In fact, he woke up and saw a huge wound on his stomach and was functional enough to call 911 for himself. Earlier that week, during the murder walkthrough, Celeste had shown Tracy which door would be left unlocked and also told her to leave the shotgun shell after she shot Steve and Celeste would hide it. Of course she never did, and it was found almost immediately when EMS and police showed up. It took almost no time for the seasoned detectives to see that the break-in and shooting looked like a staged robbery. There were some items thrown all over, but it didn't really look like anything of value was actually missing. Steve was taken to the hospital, and his family and the twins and their friends congregated there. As soon as Celeste had a moment alone with her daughter, she told her not to mention Tracy's name. However, it didn't take very long for them to break when interviewed by the police. And the daughters and their friends both said Tracy was the only one they could think of who would do this. They feared their mother's wrath, but they loved Steve more. Celeste's demeanor and statements started to seem really weird to people who saw her soon after Steve was shot. She said that Steve's dog, Megan, hadn't barked at the intruder because she had been at the lake house with Jennifer and her friends. This was odd because Megan was like another child to Steve, and she always slept by his bed. Only the teenagers knew that Celeste had actually driven Megan 40 minutes to the lake house and dropped her off with no real good explanation. Celeste also said that Steve had forgotten to turn on the alarm, which was completely unlike him. He was a stickler for safety, he always set the alarm, and he usually kept a gun by his, in his bedside table, which had not been there the night he'd been shot. The cops also quickly realized that someone had come into the house through an unlocked back door, which seems awful lucky for a random intruder to find that in the pitch darkness. At least one of the detectives was completely convinced right away that Celeste had something to do with it. Her daughter Jennifer was as well. Steve had been shot in the stomach from only a few yards away by a shotgun loaded with birdshot. He was in critical condition and he got surgery right away. Within a few days of the shooting, Tracy had been initially questioned and admitted that she owned the same type of gun that shot Steve. They took her gun for testing, and she immediately got a lawyer. She decided to tell her lawyer the whole truth that Celeste was involved, but that she'd never turn on her. 
And when Steve's grown children found out what happened, they all immediately knew Celeste was involved. Tracy's lawyer had a duty to inform the police that Tracy was saying Celeste was involved, since she could still present uh, harm to him while he lay helpless in the hospital. Soon, all family members were banned from visiting Steve, even Celeste. She was spending the next few days after her husband died doing what she did best, shopping and trying to get more money. She went shopping at her favorite upscale furniture store for a replacement bedroom set and also bought high-end bedding to replace the damaged bedding that had been taken as evidence. She was calling Steve's bank connections, trying to get immediate access to his accounts, and she called the travel agency that had planned their Europe trip within hours of Steve being shot demanding the travel insurance of $50,000 back. Basically, it looks suspicious as hell that she was on the phone trying to get money within 24 hours of her husband almost dying. She soon hired a defense attorney and blocked the door to Steve's hospital room, saying that no law enforcement was allowed to talk to Steve. For a woman with a husband nearly murdered, she was sure acting like she didn't want the case solved. Ballistics on Tracy's gun soon came back a match to the shotgun shell. She was arrested, but was able to post bail. They were also able to search her house, and from photo albums and Tracy's journal, the detectives realized the relationship had been much more than a one-way infatuation, as the twins and their friends had claimed. While Steve was in the hospital struggling to recover, Celeste had gained access to some of his money and spent lots of it on an almost complete redo of the house, including replacing the carpet, repainting everything, and getting all new furniture. In her mind, she was probably getting it ready to be hers alone. She also bought three brand new Cadillacs for herself and the twins, costing a total of $100,000. She was still continuously trying to edge out his grown children who wanted to know how he was doing. She had Steve sign a medical POA giving her control, and she wouldn't allow any information information to be given to his two sons and daughter when they called in. Out of all of the family members and friends, only Christina believed her mother could be innocent. Steve himself asked Celeste one day if she was involved, but she somehow just wormed her way back into his good graces. Speculation was beginning to spread through the people that knew the couple. Many had seen Celeste and Tracy out together, looking very friendly. And soon a reporter wrote an article in the local paper insinuating that Celeste might be involved. Celeste, of course, tried to use her attorney to intimidate the newspaper's editor, but she had nowhere near the balls of an old journalist, and he refused to be cowed. A month into being at the hospital, and Steve had lost 100 pounds. He was spending most of his days laying in bed heavily medicated. But his 75th birthday was coming up, and his three grown children wanted to come visit with him to celebrate. It had been years since all three of them had been together with their father. When Celeste found out their plan, she called each of them and screamed at them not to come. She somehow worked her evil magic on Steve, and he eventually called his children and told them not to come as well. Previously, when Steve's daughter had visited him in the hospital, Celeste had screamed at her that Steve didn't love her anymore and that she shouldn't visit anymore. Suffice it to say, she wasn't that great at playing it cool. 
A month later, Steve found out that yet again, Celeste had spent way more money than she was supposed to. She had also cashed checks that had come in the mail for Steve and kept the money in her personal account. This was yet another time during the marriage when alarm bells were going off, but he still refused to divorce her. While Steve had been in the hospital and Celeste been renova- had been renovating their house, she also had her daughters working on cleaning it out, including a huge hidden stash of paperwork such as credit card statements that she'd kept in the attic. While going through the paperwork, the girls and their boyfriends found irrefutable proof of their mother's affair with Tracy, including cards and letters. They kept those and threw everything else away. For Christmas, Celeste gave Tracy a special ring and told her it meant that they would be together forever. They just had to wait for Steve to die. Unbeknownst to Steve and Tracy, she also was paying her ex-husband to help renovate the house she lived in with her current husband. Steve was actually getting better by the end of December and had been moved into a rehab facility. He was still at high risk for infection, though, due to the many skin grafts he'd had to repair the gunshot wounds. Celeste was determined for him to die, even knowing that this would obviously raise the stakes for Tracy. By mid-January, Steve was doing well enough to be discharged and go home. However, within a day or two, he was back at the hospital with some sort of skin infection. After a couple of days, he was getting worse and his temperature was rising. Soon after, he began to decline. His blood pressure dropped, his heart was racing, and he was quickly moved to the ICU. But it was too late. At 3 p.m. on January 22, 2000, he died at the age of 75 from what was later determined to be septic shock. Within hours, Celeste had called his personal bankers to demand to be on his accounts. That same night, she had the twins pack up all of his personal belongings in boxes, some of which would go to his children, some to friends, and the rest to Goodwill. She had removed almost every trace of him from the house within 24 hours of him dying. She quickly realized she had misunderstood her access to Steve's money after he died, and instead of having full access to everything, there was a trust and very specific administration rules. Steve's death would be listed as a homicide. It was discovered that he had a blood clot from laying in bed for months, which would not have happened if he hadn't been shot, so it was ruled to be a direct result of being shot. Doctors would later argue at the trial whether he had died due to an infection or because of the blood clot. But since neither of them would have happened without him laying in a hospital bed for months, it was still determined to be a homicide. Celeste was on cloud nine now that Steve was finally dead. She was barely able to contain her excitement over suddenly being incredibly rich and not having to answer up to Steve anymore. She tried her best to put on a sad face at his funeral, but when alone with her kids and friends, she let her happiness be known. And for somebody that was supposedly innocent, she sure acted worried about being accused. She talked constantly about how evil Tracy was and how unfair it would be if the cops saw Celeste as a suspect too. Nothing is more suspicious than mentioning yourself as a possible suspect before the cops even have. 
No one knew that she had still been meeting up with Tracy regularly since Steve was shot. Tracy was out on bail, and Celeste was trying to keep her calm over the situation. Tracy had previously promised she would never turn on Celeste, so Celeste was obviously keeping a close watch on her. The twins had caught a glimpse of their mother's phone and realized she and Tracy were still talking regularly. Sometimes she would even answer the phone in front of them, and they could tell Tracy was on the other end of the line. The bank was also highly suspicious of her and being far less generous with money than Steve had been. Ironically, it turned out that Celeste would have been much better off financially if she had just waited for Steve to die of natural causes. Once she called the bank trying to force them to give her money, she claimed to have breast cancer and screamed at the lady on the phone that she would, quote, cut off her own breast and send it to her. She was obviously having a hard time keeping it together. It was as if she had planned the murder up until Steve dying, but then expected to just have all of his money handed to her and no questions asked. She met with bankers who explained that she didn't have access to the trust, which was several million dollars, but that she would receive huge monthly dividends from it at around 15000 They were correct to be worried about Celeste's spending all the money. Since Steve was shot, she had now spent over $700,000, including many completely unnecessary luxury purchases, such as the three Cadillacs and an $80,000 diamond ring for herself. She had also cashed many checks sent directly to Steve, keeping the money for herself. After seeing her many frivolous expenditures, the bank decided to consider them to be part of the $500,000 nest egg she was supposed to receive in the result of Steve's death. She was desperate for more money, always more money, despite the fact that she now owned two houses, several vehicles, and hundreds of thousands of dollars in personal belongings, she still wanted more. She even stooped as low as to take the money that her daughters earned at their part-time jobs. Less than a month after Steve's death was Celeste's 37th birthday, and she and the twins decided to go party in Houston for the occasion. She brought along an acquaintance named Donna, who was a receptionist where she got her hair done regularly. Donna had heard Celeste talk badly about Steve for a long time, but she really didn't care. Celeste was rich and could buy her things. And one thing that made them perfect friends is that they were both ruthless. Once they were in Houston, Celeste bragged about how she was, quote, fucking her way to the top, and then introduced Donna to her next conquest, a guy named Bubba. He was supposed to be loaded, but he was acting a little iffy about showing Celeste his mansion. Later that night, she brought Bubba back to the hotel room she was sharing with her daughters, her friend Donna, and her daughter's boyfriend. Her roommates were horrified to wake up to a very drunk Celeste trying to take Bubba's clothes off. He was not interested and left quickly. Later, she stalked him and realized he had actually lived in a very small apartment and was probably just lying about everything. Donna turned out to be Celeste equal not only in ruthlessness, but also in her large, self-assured personality. She decided to stick with Celeste to see how much money she could get out of her. She acted as her confidant and remained totally cool as a cucumber when Celeste came around to the idea of hiring a hitman to take out Tracy. Celeste was terrified that Tracy was going to turn on her, so she figured, might as well kill her before she can. 
Donna claimed to know a hitman, and she took money from Celeste as a down payment for the hit. Celeste soon hired her as an assistant, and the two were soon inseparable. They started going out every night together and blowing money at bars and restaurants. Celeste was dating a stable of men from all across the socioeconomic spectrum. Donna was just stringing her along about the hit that was supposed to happen and kept taking payments and making excuses. For someone who had been a receptionist, the money Celeste was giving her was probably life-changing. She was essentially treating Celeste the way Celeste had treated men her whole life. She was taking her for every penny she could get, and Celeste didn't even recognize her own tricks being used against her. And Donna wasn't just doing it for herself. She convinced Celeste to hire her own mother to do household paperwork and finances so that Donna's mom was now getting some big payments. And even though Celeste was theoretically plotting Tracy's murder, she was still talking to her on the phone pretty regularly. But it had become obvious to Tracy that whatever they might have had was completely over. It wasn't long before Donna started to get pretty tired of Celeste and her drunken idiocy. Despite all the money she was getting, just wasn't worth it. She told Celeste the assassin had changed his mind, but she had someone new in mind to do it and needed money for that guy. Celeste had given her several thousand dollars for the non-existent assassin so far, and Donna now told her that the new hitman would need 10000 total to complete the hit. By now, Christina was running Celeste's finances and was extremely suspicious of all the money that she was giving to Donna. Christina called Donna and questioned her about it, but Donna said she was more worried about the twins' safety because she was seeing how Celeste was becoming unhinged. Donna had really just gotten sick of the whole situation, and she finally told Celeste the hitman had disappeared with the money. Celeste actually blamed Christina for asking too many questions and lost her mind in anger at the daughter who had spent her life being her lapdog. She was acting actually murderously angry and threatened to kill Christina, and her daughters were legitimately afraid of her. They both left the mansion and went and hid out with friends hiding from Celeste. She began desperately calling them and everyone they knew, demanding they return home. She really just couldn't function on her own. She was essentially stalking the teenagers, and she even hired a private investigator to find them. The twins decided to start recording her chaotic phone calls, in which she could cycle through several different moods in just a few minutes. They thought correctly that they might need these recordings as evidence in the future. Celeste tried emotionally blackmailing them and also threatened them she would call the cops and accuse them of stealing from her. Finally, in desperation for her daughter Christina to come talk to her, Celeste admitted that she had hired someone to kill Tracy and was worried Donna would blackmail her with the information. Christina had finally come to believe, as the other teens did, that Celeste was definitely involved with Steve's death. They were all terrified of what she might do to them. They went to a family friend who had made some investments on their behalf, uh, but unfortunately she revealed that Celeste had cleaned out the twins' investment account within the last few months. The twins and their boyfriends decided it was time to talk to the detectives and tell them everything they knew about Celeste and Tracy. They also handed over all of the cards and letters they had found between the two women and the recordings of the calls from Celeste, 
including the one in which she admitted to hiring a hitman. When Tracy found out about the supposed hit out on her, she met up with Celeste, who seemed distraught and guilty over Steve's death, and Tracy just didn't believe that Celeste could have done that to her. Celeste also claimed again that she had cancer to gain Tracy's sympathy. She soon tried to press charges against the twins for allegedly stealing jewelry from the house, but the local police no longer believed anything she had to say. Celeste again hired Donna, this time to help her find the girls. She put Donna up in a hotel so she would have an unrecognizable phone number to track them down, and Donna just spent the week racking up room service charges and then checked out. The twins ended up taking out a restraining order against Celeste, and they joined in with Steve's older children in a wrongful death lawsuit against Celeste. Celeste and Tracy had also had a huge fight after which Tracy attempted suicide again. Celeste was now completely alone, except for her stable of men, of course. The twins ended up losing the lawsuit, but the homicide investigation was in full force. Then Celeste made her worst decision yet. Coming full circle with her last name, she married one of her regular boyfriends, Cole Johnson, who just happened to have the same exact name as her brother. He was a bartender with little money. Tracy was upset as she began to realize just how much Celeste had lied to her and manipulated her. All along, Celeste had been promising they could finally be together after this was over, but instead Celeste went off and married someone else. In February of 2001, Tracy was charged with murder. She was unable to post bail because it was too high and went to jail. Celeste was now spending Steve's money with even more abandon. She bought a house with cash for half a million dollars for herself and her fifth husband. The twins had very little money, and even worse, they had discovered that Celeste had actually used their social security numbers over the years and had essentially destroyed their credit before they were even adults. Detectives knew they wouldn't be able to convict Celeste without Tracy testifying against her, and as her March 2002 trial date approached, Tracy had begun to change her mind. She'd met a friend in jail who urged her to turn Celeste in after hearing the whole story. Her attorney wanted to make a deal to testify against Celeste in exchange for a 20-year sentence. Tracy had had a year to think about it in jail and now decided that, deal or not, she was going to tell everything that she knew. Once she told the detectives her story, passed a polygraph, and again told her story at a grand jury, Celeste was indicted on murder charges. Her bail was set at $8 million to keep her from fleeing. Just so happened to be the highest bail ever set in that county. Celeste hired an incredibly high-profile Texas defense attorney, he was known for previously having been David Koresh's attorney up until the very end of the Waco siege. And after Celeste, he would be representing Robert Durst in his murder, murder trial for killing his neighbor. Another of Celeste's attorneys had been involved in the Oklahoma City bombing case and the Texas cadet murders. Her attorney's plan was to argue that because of Tracy's mental health problems, she could not be trusted as a witness and they would attempt to place blame on the twins, saying that they'd framed their mom to get the money. 
Celeste's trial was coming up in January 2003, and prosecutors wanted to charge her with anything they could. With Donna's help, they were also able to charge her with solicitation of the murder of Tracy, which added on another couple of million dollars to her bail. And at this point, she had very little money left. Testimony in Celeste's trial began February 3, 2003. Celeste was dressed like a librarian and had a broken leg. Many speculated that she had done this on purpose for sympathy. Celeste's attorney quickly revealed himself to be a terrible human. He focused on Tracy being gay, tried to, tried to label her as an obsessive stalker over Celeste, trying to say that Tracy had imagined the whole relationship and, in reality, Celeste had merely pitied her and allowed her to be her friend. He was very selective in the documents he showed, pretty much only revealing those that seemed to corroborate his version of events. He also kept referring to the twins, now in their 20s, as spoiled, ungrateful brats. He tried his damnedest, but in the end, he just came across looking like a bully. And while Celeste tried to appear demure, she occasionally forgot herself and let her true nature flash across her face, which the jury definitely noticed. It was a long trial and involved over 100 witnesses. Despite all of the defense's attempts, their manipulation often backfired, and it made those that they were insulting, such as Tracy and the twins, actually seem more sympathetic. And vice versa. Witnesses that were defending Celeste often made her look much worse, including one who was a jailhouse informant and admitted on the stand that Celeste had given her money. Finally, after nearly two months of testimony, the jury was left to deliberate. After three days of discussion, they had decided on a verdict. Celeste was guilty of capital murder and guilty of injury to the elderly. It only took one hour of deliberation for sentencing. Celeste was given a life sentence for each charge, and she would not be eligible for parole for 40 years when she would be around 80. Both she and Tracy ended up in the same prison in Gatesville, Texas. Also there at the time were some other well-known murderesses, including Darley Routier, who is well-known for having murdered her two sons, and Clara Harris, who got revenge on her cheating husband by running him over multiple times in a parking lot. If you're interested in learning more about either of those cases, there are actually some excellent podcast episodes on both of them. The Generation Y podcast did an excellent episode about Darley Routier, and the Once Upon a Crime podcast very recently covered the Clara Harris case, and it's pretty interesting. Celeste and Clara would become fast friends. They obviously had a lot in common. Tracy Tarleton ended up spending a decade in prison per her plea deal and got out on parole in 2011, and she still lives in Texas. Thanks again for listening, friends. Next time around, I promise you some Alaska murdery goodness or something along those lines. Until next time, hope you're staying sane and staying safe during this fucked up fun time we are all experiencing together, apart. <laughs> Good night. Good evening, friends. I'm Emma, the host of the True Crime Witch podcast. Join me every other week as we delve into everything murderous, mysterious, and downright macabre. 
You can find the podcast by searching the True Crime Witch podcast on all of your favourite podcast apps and search for us on social media just using the True Crime Witch. Hope to see you there. Remember friends, stay safe and stay spooky.